Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 324th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning is my co-host is a very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Welcome back to the broadcast. You've been missed. Good morning, Chuck and everyone, and happy Nurses Week. And I missed you, too, last week. Well, that's very nice. Hey, this morning we're going to continue our reporting on physician documentation errors. Terry Fletcher reminds us once again about the issue of the chief complaint and the medical necessity imperative. A topic in which I am very interested myself. Indeed, you should be. Terry's also going to give us a preview of Part 3 in her series later in the broadcast. She's doing a four-part series. You can read Parts 1 and 2 right now on our website, and uh, you'll be able to read Part 3 next Tuesday. And also on the broadcast is Leslie Cadlick. Leslie will be reporting on how AHIMA is using data analytics to respond to the prescriptive opioid crisis. That's a very, very important subject. We're happy to have Leslie with us this morning. And just last week, there was a national story about burnout. Burnout, of course, just doesn't happen at work, but it also happens at home. Especially if you feel underappreciated. <laughs> we don't want that to happen at all. We have two reports on burnout. Wife, Coder, and mother, Christy Pollard, is going to report on how she used to feel the burn. And nationally renowned psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, is going to be with us today. He's going to give us some tips on how to avoid burnout. Burnout, of course, is a subject that he's researching for a new book that he's writing. It's Tuesday, it's May 8th, and you're listening to the 324th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD-10 Monitor, inviting you to register for an upcoming webcast on COPD. COPD affects more than 5 million Americans. Understanding the disease process and the interrelationship with emphysema, bronchitis, and asthma is important for accurate coding. This chronic condition requires clear, specific, and accurate documentation to assign the appropriate codes, as you'll learn in this webcast by Gloria Ann Bryant. Become more familiar with guidelines to help you code COPD. Register now to attend this important webcast. Learn how to accurately and compliantly code and document COPD. It's Thursday, May 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To attend, click on the Register button in the handout section of today's program or by visiting the ICD University web store. Thank you, Clark Anthony. By the way, they're still trying to register for this very important webcast on COPD, and you can do so, as Clark said, by visiting the ICD University bookstore. You can click on it. Uh, nationally recognized coding and documentation authority Terry Fletcher is with us this morning. She's going to report on the errors that she's uncovering in the review of more than 1,000 records. Here now is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you. So last week in our part two of our four-part series, I really focused on the importance of well-documented, of a well-documented chief complaint and history of present illness, as this was a major pitfall in providers trying to pass an audit. Remember, the physician has to have a right to move on with more documentation, and that's based on the presenting problem. 
But as we move forward into part three of our series this week, one of the major pitfalls I'm seeing in an audited record comes from actually the electronic medical record itself and not necessarily the physician or provider's documentation intent. Most electronic health record systems include software to help providers determine the appropriate evaluation and management ENM CPT code for patient encounters. So used correctly, these tools do support accurate coding based on medical necessity and have been associated with generally higher levels of ENM coding. However, as I audit physician practices using the EHR and EMR records, I have found significant electronic health software design flaws, inadequate implementations, and just a general lack of user knowledge regarding how the ENM coding system functions. The OIG has well documented their concerns about EMR assisting providers with coding and documentation decisions, but I found there's been little external testing of how EMRs capture and use information to recommend ENM codes. All electronic medical record systems include features that support, at least partially, accurate medical coding or ENM coding, but all have discrepancies that could cause inaccurate coding. In most healthcare settings, the physician is responsible for choosing the code, which places the liability for incorrect coding solely on the provider's shoulders. So to avoid denials, rejections, penalties, and even accusations of possible fraudulent records, providers and coding professionals should understand how electronic health record systems are designed and their limitations. One consistent trend I see is the EMR's inability to automatically identify key data elements related to the complexity of medical decision-making. So this suggests to me that, in general, EMRs may not be capturing key encounter information necessary to support accurate computer-assisted E&M coding. Providers often rely on the EMR to guide their coding-related documentation, but a system's inability to document these key E&M-related information in a structured format can lead to errors in documentation and maybe suggest lower E&M codes. So remember, an audit is, in effect, a scoring system. In other instances, EMRs generated higher-level E&M codes that were supported by documentation, but primarily through the inclusion of irrelevant information by default or sections of the record that were inappropriately cloned, meaning copied from previous record and pasted into the documentation, into the current document. All EMRs have the ability to clone information from other areas of the record, but none that I have worked with gave any warnings that a section of the record was copied and might contain inaccurate information. So now auditors like myself are now using anti-plagiarism software and other methods to detect electronic medical record cloning. One of the biggest issues of the clone note is the lack of updating one encounter to another. So although features of each electronic medical record system can vary, some of the issues, based on my experience with numerous systems and the audited record that have an impact on coding, would be programming errors, so inaccurate levels of service, calculation for the ENM codes based on information documented in the record, uh, usability issues. This is a big one. Physicians complain all the time that the EMR is difficult to use and their EMR tools for selecting the correct ENM code during the patient encounter diminishes the time the physician wants to be face-to-face or looking up with the patient and not down at a screen. Education and training were a big issue. Inadequate staff training for best coding practices when they're on their particular ENM system. Lack of supporting documentation explaining how the system determines ENM codes, further compounding this issue. And that's a big one. I'm having a really hard time with a lot of the different system um, providers really giving that information and understanding themselves, you know, how it, what, how is it calculated. 
and then user unfamiliarity of E&M coding guidelines, which has a concern for me since the 1995 and 97 guidelines are now over 20 years old and only have really been tweaked slightly over the years, but enough that there still needs some training, and I'm still training on how to choose a level of service. And then the missed design and feature flaw issues, so deficiencies in how the number of diagnoses, level of risk, and the amount of information are used to determine the overall complexity of the encounter. And then the inability to recognize documentation conflicts. This is a big one. So when information in the HPI is in direct conflict with the information with the review of system section, for example, that's a big red flag, and it's a computer. It doesn't always recognize that. But despite the challenges associated with auditing from an electronic medical record, if implemented and used properly, the systems have the potential to improve coding accuracy, and many practices have seen a remarkable improvement in their documentation and coding efforts but only after they actually took the time to thoroughly understand the inner workings and customization of their electronic health system. The most challenging step is to identify areas of deficiency in the E&M coding tool within your electronic health record so potential pitfalls can be avoided by the users. A common example of this EMR tendency to add irrelevant information to the clinical record, although through templates and default information. Remember, it's not it's not how much information you have, it's the quality of the information you have, and Medicare has been very clear on that. It's recommended that whatever EMR system you are working with, all physicians need to be able to override the system, not just to code higher if needed, but to downcode the record if the EMR is upcoding. So education and being proactive is really the key here. On our next and final installment on the four-part four series, uh, in a couple of weeks, we will focus on how the auditor is scoring relevant information in the medical decision-making process of the E&M. That's one of the probably misnomers of whenever you're looking at audited records. I see physicians all the time saying, well, I did medicine reconciliation, so automatically that's a level four, and there couldn't be a more inaccurate statement. So we want to really just focus on that so that there's a little bit better understanding of how you're being scored, how you're being tallied, and what an auditor actually would look at. Uh, when it comes to that information. So we hope you join us. I think that part is going to be in next two weeks when we complete the series. Erica, back to you. Thank you, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized healthcare coding consultant, educator, and auditor. And I have to say that I have found the same thing when I do um, consulting, that doctors just don't really get any training in how to properly document and select E&M levels of service and they are under the misguided impression that more is better, and, and CMS distinctly says that you should not select a level of service based on the volume of documentation. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think that your points were really well taken. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, very much. By the way, Erica, I know on your email signature block you say put the mentation back in documentation. Thanks again, Erica. And Terry, thank you very much. As Terry said, she's writing a four-part series on auditing issues. She is uncovered in reviewing physician documentation errors. And you can read part one and part two on our website, part three next Tuesday in our e-news. And we thank you again, Terry, very much. You know, we're learning more and more about burnout, especially burnout among physicians and coders. And of course, we've been reporting on these broadcasts. But what is new to us, and of course it shouldn't be, is that burnout occurs at home as well as at the workplace. For someone who's felt the burn at home and at work, here is senior coding consultant Christy Pollard. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me today. 
In my ICD-10 Monitor article last week, I outlined 10 strategies that I use for preventing burnout. And last week, I really put those tips to the test as I participated in Colorado's HIM Association Annual Conference and my just general life as a wife and a mother. And even though one of my strategies includes reminding myself that I can't have it all at the same time, it certainly didn't prevent me from trying as I hosted a networking breakfast for my peers, served on program committee while chairing the data quality committee, accepted an award as distinguished member while my family looked on, got as many cuddles from my daughter as I could at lunch before she went home for a nap with my husband. I gave two presentations, kept going through the president's reception and dinner with my committee co-chair, and that was Thursday. On Friday afternoon, by the time I got to Friday afternoon, um, after another full day of networking and educational sessions, I really wanted to cut out early and go home and take a nap myself, but I also wanted to listen to the final presenter of the day. It was David Remsen, and his title of his presentation was, Dear Stress, Let's Break Up, and I felt like it was something I needed to listen to. Now, if I could, I would spend my time with you this morning replaying his one-hour presentation, but here's the gist of it. We need to stop using the S word. I'm so stressed is a statement that many of us use and often daily, but why are we stressed out? And he suggested that we evaluate the underlying cause of our stress and put another name on it. Either you're exhausted or overwhelmed or something else. But once you put a name on it, you can start to take actions to correct it. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing, and he had many other points that drove home that main point, but it helped give me some perspective after a long week. I was exhausted and overwhelmed, and after two days of chatting up my peers and being in the spotlight, I was overstimulated, and I really was not happy about the hour and a half drive home in Denver rush hour traffic, but I did make lots of progress on my audio book, so hey, at least there's a positive in there somewhere. Now, let me preface my comments by saying I'm not a licensed clinical psychologist and I'm really not qualified to tell people how to deal with life stress, but I've learned some valuable coping skills after a couple of bouts of burnout myself. And what I didn't put in my article and feel like I should have is the need to check in with yourself and do a quick assessment of what you're feeling so you can decide how to protect yourself. Now, last week, since I felt exhausted at the end of the week, I knew that rest was important over the weekend. I also knew I needed to be away from people and focus on my family. Luckily, I didn't have anything scheduled over the weekend, but it was a busy time at home transitioning my daughter's room from a nursery to a toddler play space and painting and staining furniture, but I also fit in some time just to be and rest. In work, the work I've done as a mentor through my Coder Coach blog and networking with coding students, I've tried to be honest about the coding industry. This is a stressful job. I think a lot of people have a vision of rolling out of bed in the morning and padding down to the home office, coffee cup in hand, and leisurely working for the day. Or maybe your vision of remote coding is working at the beach. But the reality is we are under productivity and quality standards, and if you don't meet them, your job or your remote coding environment may be in jeopardy. We work with confidential information and are responsible for protecting it. We must keep up with the latest coding changes and publications. And if we work from home, we are the first line of tech support when the computer freezes or the Internet goes down. The list goes on. 
So that's just work. If you also have a family, there's an added layer of complexity. And if there's one point that I want you to take away today, it's take care of yourself and learn to do that efficiently. It's a fact of life that you won't have time to do everything you want to do when you want to do it. But I believe that learning to efficiently care for yourself is that secret to work-life balance. Thank you, Christy. And I would just like to uh, add a couple of two cents here, and that is that sometimes just good enough is good enough. And also, I want you all out there to be feeling that you're valued and that you're valuable because I think that that's another problem is, you know, people think, oh, you know, they're, oh, we're, we're just coders. Well, you're very important. You are a big cog in the mechanism of the hospital, so you should feel valued. That was Christy Pollard. Christy is a senior coding consultant at Helgen Consulting Group. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thanks for that advice, too. And thank you, Christy, very much for being with us today and uh, for some really great tips on how to ward off burnout. You can read Christy's article on our homepage at ICD10Monitor.com. Our second report on burnout is an important subject to our next guest. Our next guest is a nationally recognized psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick has been researching and reporting on burnout extensively. Here now with important insight into burnout is Tucked In Tuesday resident psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Good morning, Dr. Moffick. Morning, Chuck. You know, most everybody working in healthcare by now knows about the epidemic of burnout, ranging from coders to physicians. At times, the refuge of home life has been noted to provide some protection and restoration. Yet, what if home life is also compromised? One reason that can occur is because the healthcare professional burnout can bleed into home life. Emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and sense of being ineffective makes for an impaired relationship with a loved one because there's just not enough emotional reserve to give and or because the loved one doesn't understand the burnout and blames themselves for the problems. Since burnout was traditionally investigated only in the workplace as a social problem, it was only until recent years that it has been considered and studied in parents. As insight developed that the changing role of parents can provide a similar soil for the growth of burnout. With obstacles such as longer work hours, overuse of technology, and problems with children akin to patients, burnout is starting to grow at home like weeds. The phrase, I'm so exhausted, seems to be the calling card. And they are so exhausted, which is a key symptom of burnout. Extended families can no longer provide enough support if they are spread across the country, as is often the case. Moreover, new research indicates that this home-like burnout can seem even more serious and worrisome to parents than general workplace burnout. In 2017, a research study out of Belgium was telling, with results likely generalizable to other economically developed countries, especially like our own. Using a newly developed parental burnout inventory based on the MASLOC used in healthcare workplaces, a high level of parental burnout ranged up to 12%. For those wanting a more popular read, at least concerning mothers, the new book by the psychologist and mother of three, Cheryl Ziegler, titled Mommy Burnout, has recently been published. One often doesn't recognize one is burning out, so a book like this can help that. This new research and concern indicates that any approach to healthcare burnout needs to take into account the quality of home life without being intrusive or invading privacy inappropriately. That means offering confidential ways to assess burnout and education about the risks. Collegial support, both professional and personal, is crucial. 
Future research needs to look at those who are burned out at both places. More than likely, that even increases the suicide risk, necessitating a full-scale societal and political response. Since we in health and mental health care should know the solutions the best, we should get out there more and lead the way. Back to Erica. That was Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick is a nationally renowned psychiatrist. Dr. Moffick is also a member of a new work group at the American Psychiatric Association, one that is dealing with psychiatrist and physician burnout. And Dr. Moffick will be a co-editor of a new book on burnout among psychiatrists. You can hear today's live broadcast on demand anytime, anywhere, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and we... Thank you very much for doing so. There's strong emphasis to collect data about the opioid epidemic, but what are healthcare organizations doing with this information once they get it? Here now to report on what AHIMA is doing is Leslie Caddick. Good morning, Leslie. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So as we've been talking about um, the opioid addiction and um, the uh, deadly crisis that it's become, um, we recognize at AHIMA that it's become um, somewhat of a public health emergency. So AHIMA had released a documentation tip sheet to help guide healthcare providers in, documented, in documenting opioid use, abuse, and dependency. The guidelines that are detailed in the uh, opioid tip sheet help healthcare providers ensure that clinical documentation is trustworthy and that the health data which is being used to drive that research and education on opioids is based on accurate information. And because of the success of the opioid tip sheet, AHIMA also began to recognize that getting to the root of the opioid problem required health information management professionals to take a more structured approach to helping them respond to the opioid crisis. One of the ways that AHIMA is working to address the problem is through providing guidance to our health data analysts to help them examine opioid data and addiction trends. Health data analysts and HIM professionals use both EHR and claims data to better understand factors such as prescription providing, prescribing patterns, prescription quantities like the number of pills that are prescribed per prescription, and opioid refill rates. And then they can use analytics to compare that data to the types of illnesses and surgeries where opioid painkillers are being prescribed the most. The increased use of health information technology as well as the widespread use of the electronic health records has also resulted in an increase in the amount of data capture. And that includes opioid prescribing information and data on abuse, overdose information, and also the use of overdose antidotes. Additionally, some states that are using the prescription drug monitoring program are collecting information on prescriptions that are filled for controlled substances, and that data is being made available to clinicians to assist them in making prescribing decisions. Recently, the state of Illinois has taken that data even a step further. They launched a statewide dashboard to share information among their healthcare providers, their law enforcement, and their community organizations to demonstrate how opioids are affecting the population in their state and to get this data into the hands of caregivers to help them as they work through alleviating the crisis among their own patients. In healthcare organizations, more and more informatics tools are being deployed to assist clinicians with adhering to opioid prescribing guidelines. 
a variety of these cl clinical decision support tools are being developed, and they allow real-time guidance and feedback to clinicians at the time of prescribing. For example, some tools are allowing for the integration of the prescription drug monitoring programs right with their electronic health records. And other tools, such as interactive dashboards, are being used to provide internal and external data on a number of opioid-related statistics, such as emergency department visits, opioid-related deaths, neonatal addiction, and more. Healthcare providers and health administrators can use these dashboards to help them provide improved care to patients and address the business requirements of their healthcare organizations. Health information professionals can also assist in building those informatics tools and the dashboards for their organizations to assist in combating the opioid epidemic within their own patient populations and the communities they serve. Because health records are so rich with data, health information management professionals can also use their data analysis skills to tap into the EHRs and uncover those patterns that help make opioid use and addiction data actionable, which results in improved population health and lower health care costs for everyone. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on the program. Now, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Leslie. That was Leslie Cadlick. Leslie is the Director of HIM Practice Excellence at AHIMA. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you, Leslie, very much. And You can read my interview with Leslie on the important work that she and her team are doing on the opioid crisis in today's ICD-10 monitoring news. And now we turn to Dr. Erica Reamer and her very popular segment, Talk Back. Chuck, I wanted to talk about the uh, National Physician Advisor Conference, which I attended last week. If you've never come to it, you should. This was my second year, and it's truly the best conference I've ever attended. There are multiple factors that contribute to how magical I feel it is. I suppose I am obligated to make the disclaimer that I was elected to the board of the American College of Physician Advisors in April, but I do not think this prejudices me. The conference is extremely well-planned and orchestrated. Since it's a pretty intimate group, we had about 280 attendees this year, there's a single track, so I don't have to choose between competing interesting and equally compelling topics, feeling as though I missed out not being able to go to them all. There are a limited number of terrific vendors, so you don't feel overwhelmed, and you can interact with them all. The theme this year was Kindling the Fires of Excellence, and Lisa Banker assigned clever titles to the sessions like Howie Stein's Inter Interdisciplinary Rounds, Keeping Feet to the Fire, and our frequent guest, Juliette Ugarte Hopkins' Observation, the Art of Churn and Burn. The focus of the meeting is principally utilization review and case management, and I learn a great deal from each presenter. The conference committee makes a concerted effort to cater to both new and veteran physician advisors. This year we had two excellent CDI-related presentations by Tim Brundage and Trey Lacherte, members of the ACPA CDI Education Subcommittee, which I co-chair. I can't think of another conference I've ever attended which had as uniformly great speakers as NPAC. Every one of them is an expert in the field with a depth of knowledge and a willingness to share successes and failures. De Egusiza gave an animated and engaging presentation regarding CM in the emergency department. Pooja Nagpal gave a great primer on UR101, and Monitor Monday's own Ron Hirsch imparted knowledge in several sessions, including putting some pepper on it and total knees. Questions were written on cards and reviewed in panel discussions at the end of the day with ample time to expand and explore the topics. On the last day, there was a fabulous case-based panel discussion with audience participation by group polling. 
The venue has been great the last two years. The meeting has been held in the spring in Greenville, South Carolina, which is a darling town with terrific eateries. I believe we've outgrown the space, however, so next year it might be moved to another location. But we will not give up the best part of the meeting, which is the networking. In the morning, there are small group breakfast sessions with experts like Nick Ulmer, Phil Baker, Brian Moore, and Tony Schoolenbreen, contractor medical director of a CMS MAC, facilitating discussions on a range of URCM topics. Hands down, though, my favorite part is dine with docs. Each evening, two or three faculty and or board members head off down Main Street with fellow PAs to have a most convivial double Dutch dinner with great company and lively conversation. The only thing I have left to say is, Join ACPA and come meet us at NPAC 2019. Chuck, back to you. Thank you, Dr. Reamer. And I was thinking how delightful it would be to have dinner with you, Dr. Reamer. Thanks very much. That's going to be a wrap for this, our 324th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And, Erica, I want to thank our guests today, Terry Fletcher, Leslie Cadlick, Christy Pollard, and Dr. H. Stephen Moffat. We hope you're going to be right back here next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Eric Reaver and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.